1: Hey y'all, Eve's here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was March 11th, 1892. In Springfield, Massachusetts, seven students and seven teachers played the first public game of basketball at the International Young Men's Christian Association Training School, or what is now Springfield College. An article in the March 12th issue of a Springfield newspaper said the following... Over 200 spectators craned their necks over the gallery railing of the Christian Workers' Gymnasium while they watched the game of basketball yesterday afternoon between the teachers of the International Young Men's Christian Association Training School and the students. At the time, James Naismith was working as a physical education instructor at the YMCA Training School in Springfield. The students at the school were confined indoors during the cold Massachusetts winter, and they had a lot of pent-up energy. The calisthenics and children's games they were playing in class just weren't cutting it for the rowdy students. So a teacher challenged Naismith to create a game that could keep students active in the wintertime between football and baseball seasons. Naismith drew from the games of rugby, lacrosse, and another that combines tag and marksmanship called Duck on a Rock. So on December 21st, 1891, Naismith asked his students to play a 9 versus 9 match using a soccer ball and two peach baskets. He mounted the peach baskets to the lower rail of the gym's balcony, which was about 10 feet or 3 meters above the ground. The goal was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. The baskets didn't have holes in the bottom, so students in the balcony would have to grab the ball out of the basket when it went in. But since Naismith hadn't given the students any clear guidelines other than get the ball in the basket, the game didn't go so well. He said the following in a 1939 radio interview. The boys began tackling, kicking and punching in the clinches. Before I could pull them apart, one boy was knocked out. Several of them had black eyes and one had a dislocated shoulder. It certainly was murder. But even though the game didn't go too smoothly, the students still wanted to play again. So Naismith wrote 13 rules for the game. His secretary typed the rules on two pages and he hung them up in the gym. I won't tire you by going through all of the original rules, but here are some. The ball may be thrown or batted in any direction with one or both hands. A player cannot run the ball, but must throw it from the spot where he catches it, though there is leniency for a player who catches the ball when running if he tries to stop. That no running with the ball rule kept the players from tackling and hitting each other. Naismith had invented the game of basketball, which was originally written as two words. And in a January 15th, 1892 article that was sent to YMCAs across the United States, he listed the rules of the new game. Five days later, the first official game of basketball was played at a YMCA gym in Albany, New York. And on March 11th, the first public game was played at the YMCA training school gym in Springfield the sport quickly spread across college campuses. The first intercollegiate basketball game was played in 1895, and the first professional basketball league formed three years after that. By around this time, teams of five were the norm. In 1901, dribbling was introduced, though it wasn't that efficient considering balls were still asymmetrical. By 1906, the game used nets with holes in the bottom. And today, the sport looks a lot different than it did at that first game in 1891. And the rule book is a lot longer. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. So here's some fun trivia I found while researching this episode. Naismith's original 13 rules were purchased at auction in 2010 for $4.3 million dollars. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.
0: I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest.
1: Where are you taking me?
0: Are you death? Yes, Is-
1: Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow.
0: In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And welcome to This Day in History Class, a podcast where we rip out a page from the history books every day. The day was March 11th, 1918. The first case of the Spanish flu was reported in the U.S., In 1918, the H1N1 influenza virus caused an extremely deadly flu pandemic. It caused at least 50 million deaths around the world, making it the deadliest pandemic of the 20th century. On the morning of March 11th, Private Albert Kitchell of the U.S. Army went to the Camp Infirmary in Fort Riley, Kansas, with a fever. By noon, more than 100 soldiers had also reported symptoms of fever, sore throat, and headaches. That number increased exponentially over the next week. Many of those soldiers died of pneumonia that spring. Their cases are the first known ones of the 1918 flu epidemic. That said, the true origin of the Spanish flu is unknown. Army camps and prisons around the country began to see cases of the deadly flu, and the flu spread to Europe from the U.S., The illness became known as the Spanish Influenza because it was first officially recognized in Spain, a country that was neutral during World War I. That meant that the press was not as censored as in other countries, so the Spanish media was the first to widely report on the spread of the flu in May of 1918. Once the flu made it across the globe, the number of cases only continued to rise, and it spread really fast to Russia, China, the Philippines, New Zealand, and places in North Africa. The virus traveled along international shipping lanes, and it followed the massive groups of people who had to travel due to the war. The overcrowding that was ubiquitous under the conditions of war also helped the flu spread. But even after the First World War ended in November of 1918, the pandemic surged on. In fact, flu cases increased as soldiers demobilized and people celebrated the war's end. Industries declined, and public spaces such as movie theaters and schools shut down. The Spanish flu had a super high fatality rate. On top of that, the flu was unusually deadly for young adults. There was no vaccine for flu infections and no antibiotics to treat bacterial infections related to the flu. Though there were initiatives to develop a vaccine, those efforts were not fruitful since researchers were focused on bacterium. So the flu was contained through methods like isolation, good hygiene, wearing masks, disinfectants, and restrictions on public gatherings. Adding to the spread in the U.S. was the lack of professional nurses, since many were away at military camps and institutions stewed Black nurses. There were three waves of the H1N1 flu pandemic, with the last occurring during the winter and spring of 1919. That last wave subsided by the summer. But in the end, the virus had infected an estimated one-third of the world's population. Influenza was first isolated in 1930, showing that the flu is caused by a virus rather than a bacterium. Vaccination against the flu began in the 1930s, with the vaccine becoming more widely available in the following decades. There were around 675,000 deaths due to the 1918 flu pandemic in the United States. Though the virus that caused the pandemic has been extensively researched, it's still unclear why it was so deadly. H1N1 viruses distantly related to the 1918 virus popped back up in 2009, causing another pandemic known as the swine flu. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions or comments, you can leave us a note at podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also shoot us an email at at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you here again tomorrow.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.